Our sermon this morning is from Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 38. So turn to Luke 22 in your Bibles if you have them. If you don't, you can grab a pew Bible uh, in front of you. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Luke 22 on page 829. So turn there. We're going to look at what Jesus says to Peter and to the rest of the disciples about what is coming uh, soon in their, in their lives, right? About Peter's upcoming when he's going to deny Jesus three times and about the disciples as he sends them out to go do ministry after he uh, has, has died and uh, been res- resurrected and been uh, ascended back to heaven. Jesus is going to talk with the disciples now about what's coming for them in that moment. And we're going to consider together, what is Jesus saying to us? Right? What, what is Jesus calling us to as his people, right? How does what he said to his apostles before sending them out, commissioning them to go do ministry in the world after his death, what does that have to say to us uh, as his people today? We've got a lot, lot of ground to cover, so we're just going to jump right in. We're going to jump right in and read through Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 38, and then consider it together. It says, Simon, Simon, this is Jesus talking to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak to buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said, them, it is enough. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts over these next few minutes. We pray, Lord, that you would help us. We pray that you would give us uh, clarity and and vision. Give us a, a soft heart to hear your word and to respond rightly to your word. We pray, Lord, that you would bless the receiving of your word so that we can live in light of it as your people. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. It feels a little dim. Are, are, the light, can we, are, are all the lights up in the, in the house? Or my, my, oh, yeah, can we, like, thanks. I just like to be able to see you as, as we, we go along. All right. So we'll begin verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Simon was Peter's name before Jesus changed it to Peter. So he's kind of giving a nod to his previous way, way of life as he is kind of anticipating uh, this moment, this momentary lapse in faith and boldness that Peter was going to experience later that night. He says, Satan has demanded to have you. Satan, the idea is that Satan has gone into the presence of God the Father and and stood before him and demanded to take possession of of Peter. Similar to how how Satan, um, you know, 
what he does at the beginning of the book of Job, right? Satan goes into the presence of God and makes demands of God about uh, Job, right? Demands to, to, you know, take all of his stuff and, and you know, do, do harm to all of his family. Eventually, uh, Satan, you know, strikes Job with sores, you know, all over his whole body. His wife eventually is looking at him thinking, man, you must have done something. Why don't you just curse God and, and die, right? So Satan goes to God and, and kind of demands or requests to be able to attack Job. Satan goes to God, demands or requests to uh, sift Peter like wheat. Right? It's the, the, the you know, the, when you would harvest wheat in the ancient world, um, you would have to separate the wheat from the chaff, right? The, the, there's a seed of grain that's edible, uh, and it's surrounded by a husk that is, you know, just a bunch of trash that you would have to throw away. And so similar to how you would shuck corn or, like, peel a banana to get to the good part, the edible part, and throw away the trash, you'd have to do that with your wheat harvest uh, before you would bring it in and use it to, like, make bread and other kinds of things. And the way that you would separate the wheat from the chaff is pretty... Um, it's pretty intense. It's pretty violent. You can Google it. It's on YouTube. Um, you have to like, you put the wheat in a bag and smash it on the, on a rock or on the ground, or you would take like a mallet or a hammer and beat it. Cause as you do, uh, all of the chaff is, uh, like the, the wheat kernels are stronger, but the chaff is kind of all, it gets beaten and it gets pulverized. And then you take the wheat that you've beaten and kind of threshed and stomped on and however you can do it. And you throw it up in the air and then the heavy wheat kernels fall right down to the ground, and then the chaff kind of blows away in the, in the wind. And so, so Jesus uses this imagery, this metaphor, as what Satan wants to do to Peter, like beat you violently, brutally, uh, you know, this kind of like intense yeah, language of, of violence. And Jesus is saying that's uh, who Satan is, that's, Satan what, that's what Satan wants to do with uh, with you. Satan wants to hurt and kill and destroy pe- uh, Peter, hurt and kill and destroy the people of God. He's not bashful about it. He's willing to walk right up to God, uh, look him right in the eye, and demand to be able to, to do it. The Bible is not, uh, you know, it doesn't shy away from the the violence and the danger that are inherent to the, the Christian life. We have, a, we have an enemy that is ruthless and deadly and is hell-bent on destroying us. And we are at war with that enemy. Satan wants to beat and smash and pulverize uh, his, his people. He wants, to, he wants to do violence to them. He wants to destroy them and, and ultimately shipwreck them. Don't... don't uh, be naive about the vitriol that Satan and the demonic realm have for you. Don't underestimate the harm that they want to do to you. Don't, you know, don't, don't swim with a shark and convince yourself that it's a minnow because you don't like the, to think about the fact that sharks exist, right? Like, like be, uh, go, go into your spiritual life, go into the, the battlefield that is the Christian life where you are warring against demonic forces. You're warring against a, a world that it's, that has set itself up in opposition to God. You're warring against your own, 
uh, flesh and sinful nature that wants to push you away from God. Don't go into those, uh, you know, naive or without understanding the reality of what's, what's going, going on. Satan wants to destroy you, and our task is to be on guard against him and to be as ruthless with how we fight against sin as Satan is ruthless with us and wanting to destroy us. But it's not just that, um, that Satan wants to do violence to Peter, do violence to the, Peter, to the people of God, and this sifting uh, imagery and metaphor is that, but there's also a, a separation. Uh, there's, there's an aspect of separation and division, right? You, you separate and divide the wheat from the, from the chaff. You, you kind of violently pull them apart from one another. You, you, you know, where, where they were formerly together, you kind of yank them apart. God, Jesus is saying that's what Satan wants to do to the people of God, divide them, separate them, kind of pull them uh, apart. Satan wants to undermine the unity that God intends for the people of God to have in Christ. He wants to drive a wedge into the people of God and, and separate them. As you read the New Testament, uh, the recurring theme, it, over and over and over, you see this drumbeat, this recurring theme that God wants his people to be un, unified. He wants them to be united around the gospel. He does not want division to, to you know, harm and threaten the people of God. John 13, this is, how you will, this is how everyone will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. Galatians 2, uh, Paul confronts Peter because Peter is withdrawing away from members of the body of Christ. He's introducing division into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, let there be no division among you, but rather be united and of the same mind. Ephesians 4, be humble, gentle, patient, Bear with one another in love. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The entire chapter of Ephesians 2 is about unity, right? You are separated from Christ, alienated from your fellow man. God has brought you near. He has broken down the wall of hostility. He's made peace. He has killed the hostility. He has reconciled us to one another and created one new man where there were formerly two. Right? The, the, the picture of the New Testament, God's will for the church, is a united body that loves one another and loves their Savior together. And Satan's uh, intention is to divide, it's to drive apart, drive a wedge into it, make the people of God fight amongst each other, resent each other, argue with each other, blame each other, assume the worst about each other. I want to do it this way, and this is my cause, this is my issue, this is my tribe. I'm going to silo off, you know, we're, we're going to circle the wagons with our group over here and kind of bring division into the body of Christ, and Satan is looking for a way to encourage that, to promote that. One of his primary strategies in doing harm to the people of God is by introducing division into the church. When, we're, when the church is not united... It's harmful to our own souls, right? Causes people to stop growing in Christ, walk away from the faith. And when we're not united, it also hurts our witness to the world. The world looks at the church and thinks, man, they are a mess. They can't even get along with one another. They, they worship a Savior who's loving and gracious and humble, but they are none of those things, so we don't want anything to do with, with Jesus. So divisiveness... Is one of the 
sins that the New Testament is particularly aware of and concerned about and, and kind of pushing back against. We see this in Romans 16. Paul says, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but rather they serve their own appetites. Those who cause division. Same thing in Titus 3. A person who stirs up division, warn him once and then twice and then have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and self-condemned. Right? The, the recurring picture of God's will for the people of God is united. The recurring warning against people is do not uh, introduce division into the people of God. Doing so is not the work of God. It's the work of, it's the work of, of Satan. And so when we consider Jesus' words to Peter here in verse 31, we should do so considering the health of our own soul, knowing that we have a violent, ruthless enemy that wants to destroy us. We need to fight just as hard and be just as ruthless in how we pursue Christ and godliness and humility. And when we consider the church collectively, like our, our body of Christ, we need to do so knowing that we have a violent, ruthless enemy who wants to tear us apart, and we need to fight just as hard and be just as ruthless in how we pursue one another and charity and kindness and love and unity around the gospel. Satan demanded to have you. He wants to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, prayed for your faith, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So Jesus doesn't say, Satan wanted to harm you, but I'm not going to let that happen. I would never allow anything bad to happen to you. I, mean, I would never allow you to suffer. I would never allow anything bad, trials, temptations to come into your life. doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Satan wanted to harm you, but I'm confident that you'll be okay. Because he's not really that strong and you are not really that vulnerable, so you'll be fine. He doesn't say, Satan wanted to harm you, so that's it. You're, you're toast. Like, sorry, buddy. You know, I, I wish I could help you, but I can't, right? He says, Satan wanted to harm you. He will. I'm going to allow it. And apart from my intervention, apart from my grace, apart from my praying for you and interceding for you, you would be uh, overwhelmed and overcome and destroyed by Satan. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So yes, Satan is stronger than you. He could overcome you. But even as he does seek to overcome you, do violence to you, I will not abandon you. I will not forget you. I will not let you go. I will intervene. I will intercede. I have prayed for you. The promise of Jesus is that things will be difficult. Satan will attack us. He will sift us like wheat. And that he will be with us and he will not let us go. All too often, we run the risk of having this vision of the Christian life where we think, nothing bad is ever going to happen to me. God would never let that happen, uh, right? The God I believe in would not allow that. He would never say that. He would never do that. Or, or we fashion God into who we want him to be, and then we walk through life feeling entitled to the life that we want because we've convinced ourselves that the life we want is actually what God wants for us. Or we run the risk of thinking, if anything bad ever does happen to me, I'm big, I'm strong, I'm smart, 
right? I am the greatest. I'm self-sufficient. I'll make it through it all by myself. Or we think, if push comes to shove, if it really gets bad, I'm going to walk away. Punt the faith, cash in, leave the, leave the table. And here in this one sentence, Jesus is confronting all three of those, uh, of, of those postures, right? The posture that says, I'm strong enough, I'm great enough to handle anything Satan brings to me, right? The, the, the idea that I deserve and am entitled to the life that I want, and the idea that if I don't get it, I'm walking, I'm walking away. Jesus, in his sovereign kindness, allows trials and sufferings to come into our life, not because he's bad, but because he's good, and because he knows that it is ultimately for our good. And amidst those trials, amidst that suffering, Jesus is with us, praying for us, working in us, preserving us, helping us, keeping our faith from failing so that we will not fall away. And as we experience that, the credit is not our own, as if we were the ones who overcame Satan. The credit is Christ's for having interceded and intervened on our behalf. So verse 31, Satan wants to destroy you and bring division. Verse 32, Jesus will not let you go. He will keep you and he will cause you to persevere. And here's why. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter, the reason why I have saved you, the reason why I am going to keep you and preserve you and strengthen you and help you to persevere through the affliction that Satan wants to bring onto you, the reason why I'm doing all that is so that you can come out on the other side, strengthen your brothers, love your fellow believers, serve them, encourage them, help them, disciple them. That's why I have saved you, not so that, so that you could... Um, hoard the grace that I have given to you, but so that you can be a part of the family of God and do deliberate spiritual good to help others follow Christ. This is a shot at this kind of individualistic, right? Uh, uh, you know, I believe in God. It's me. It's my faith. It's my relationship. It's none of anyone else's business. I don't want your help with my relationship with God. I don't owe you any help with your relationship with God. Jesus is confronting that. And frankly, that's all too, that's all too familiar for us in the 21st century America, right? This kind of this individualistic me, my relationship with God, no one else's business but, but mine. Part of that, part of why that is so, uh, that seems so normal to us, this kind of individualistic understanding of salvation and of our Christian life is because it's, um, part of it is right. It's a reaction against, uh, you know, unhealthy, unbiblical theology from centuries past. For over a thousand years in church history, this idea of an individual like salvation, justification by faith, salvation being an individual thing where I trust Christ was, was kind of foreign in, in, the, in the church. Salvation was kind of seen as this like, it was more of a national identity. You're born into a religion the same way that you're born into a country as a citizen, right? I'm, I'm Roman Catholic. I'm Greek Orthodox. I'm Irish Catholic, whatever it is, right? Like one of the big things of the, the Reformation that it kind of got right and set straight was this idea that, that 
we are saved not by being born into a country or into a religion, but we're saved by faith, by trusting in Jesus, right? And in his person and work and what he has done to save us from our sin. So the, the Reformation came along and rightly said, salvation is not national, it's not ethnic, it's not geopolitical. Salvation is personal. It's a personal transaction that happens between an individual and God. But you take that, and you fast forward it a few centuries, and you kind of let it stew in American individualism and personal autonomy for too long, and the pendulum kind of swings back the other way, right? right? You, let, you let this idea of, uh, I'm not born into a religion, I become a part, I, I trust in Christ as an individual, if that sits too long in the you know, don't tread on me, my body, my choice, right? It's, it's all about, right, my, my personal liberties and autonomy. If it sits there too long, then you end up swinging back to, right, you, you rightly swing away from uh, co- individuals aren't saved, countries are saved, you're born into a religion. That's wrong, that's not biblical, but it swings into, this is all about me and God, right? My salvation is 100% vertical, 0% horizontal, uh, it's all about me and my relationship with God and what I feel in my heart and no one else gets to speak into my life and I don't have to do anything for anyone else. And that's also wrong and also unbiblical. The reality is salvation is personal. It's not societal, ethnic, national. It's personal, but it's not private. right? It's, 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 a, it's public. It's part of a family. It's part of a church. The idea of a Christian who does not want to be a part of a church, is utterly foreign to the New Testament. So, it's individual. You become a believer by trusting in Christ. It's something that you do. No one else can do it for you. And it's part of the church. The church affirms you and accounts for you and shepherds you and and has responsibilities to take care of you. And you have responsibilities to other members of the church. Christianity is not personal. or I'm sorry. Christianity is personal, but not private. It's personal and also uh, congregational. So that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying, I've prayed for you. I have uh, you know, given my grace to you, my mercy to you. I'm going to take care of you and make sure that you don't fall away even as Satan attacks you. And I'm doing that specifically not for your own sake, not so that you can have and hoard this grace that I've given you, not so that you can go live in a monastery you know, and meditate 24-7 and achieve new levels of enlightenment. I'm not doing it so that you can have this secret thing living inside of you that no one else knows about. I'm saving you not just for your own sake, but also for the sake of your fellow believers, your church, people with names that you know and live with, and, and they disciple you and help you to grow, and you disciple them and help them to grow, and, and you gather together for corporate worship, and you read the Word of God together, and you consider it and apply it together and you encourage one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and you observe the sacraments together and you hold one another accountable so that you can persevere in the faith and you disciple one another and you do deliberate spiritual good to one another so that you can help each other follow Christ. You invite discipling relationships from one another and you ask people to help you follow Christ. When someone needs to be encouraged, you encourage them because you know them and you care for them. If someone needs to be confronted, you confront them because they have given you permission to confront them because you're fellow members in the body of Christ. That's Jesus' vision for the Christian life. 
I save you, I keep you, I intercede for you, I give you mercy so that you will not be overcome by Satan so that you can be a part of the family of God and strengthen your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're not a member of a church, I would, I would encourage you to pursue that. Come talk to me and I'll uh, help encourage you toward membership. If no one's discipling you, come talk to me and I'll help you find someone that can disciple you. If you're not discipling anyone, come talk to me and I'll help you find someone that you can disciple. If you don't know how to disciple someone, come talk to me. I'll teach you and show you how so that you can go and disciple others, so that we can kind of live out this vision that Jesus has for the Christian life of personally trusting in Christ and then congregationally walking with God together. And in verse 33, Peter says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Peter, Satan wants to kill you. I am going to take care of you so that you can be a part of the family of God. And Peter's response is, I am going, like, I have got this. I am ready to go to prison. I am ready to die. This is classic Peter, right? Just shoot first, ask questions later, right? Just he always, he's always the one to speak up. He's always the one to weigh in. He's super confident. He always has something to say. Everyone else is cautious measured, right? Take a beat. Let's, what did Jesus just say? Let's, let's think about it. Peter's like, you know, what are we waiting for? Let's, let's go. Let's, let's do it. Self-assured, confident to the point of pride and, and hubris. Now, there is something a little commendable about what Peter's doing and saying here, right? Like you, you, Jesus doesn't want his followers to say, I might follow you if I feel like it. I'll follow you right up until the moment when it becomes uncomfortable. I'll follow you, but I reserve the right to back out and do whatever I want as soon as it demands something of me. Right? Jesus doesn't want his followers to think like that. So in a sense, Peter's to be commended for being willing to suffer and being willing to endure persecution. It's commendable. But what's not commendable and what's downright sinful is this uh, pride and just this absolute dogged self-assuredness, right? I, I think so highly of myself that I have absolutely no need for concern. I don't need to worry about my besetting sins. I don't need to worry about my sinful nature. I don't need to worry about my adversaries that want to do me harm. I've got this because I am the greatest, It's every bit as bad as the I'll only follow Jesus as long as it's easy and comfortable, right? Self-confidence and self-reliance and pride are every bit as dangerous for the Christian as self-indulgence. Think about it in, in sports. There's two, I love sports. It's football season, it's my favorite time of the year. There's two kinds of players that are just a, a cancer in the locker room. They're, they're a, a disaster for the team that coaches are going to, you know, they're going to cut if they think you're one of them. They're, 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 they're gonna, it's just a, 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 you know, a pain in the neck for a coach. One is the guy who quits, right? The guy who, I don't want to be here. I'm just doing it for the money. My heart's not in it. I don't care if we win or lose. 
I'm not going to hustle in practice. The first one to hold out for more money if he wants it or demand a trade or not show up or, or quit in the middle of the season. I don't care if the team wins or loses. I don't care how my actions affect whether or not we win or lose games. That guy is a disaster. The guy who quits will do damage to the team. And there's another guy that will do damage to the team. It's the guy who's cocky, right? I'm the best player in the league. I won the Heisman Trophy. I won the MVP. I don't need to get any better. I'm already as good as any player could possibly be. There's nothing I can learn from my coach, nothing I can learn from my teammates. They don't know anything I don't already know. Walks with a swagger right up until he gets embarrassed in the big game because he realizes that the other team was way better than he thought they were and he was nowhere near as good as he thought he was. That guy's a disaster too. Maybe the best player on the team, maybe the best player in NFL history, but he's a disaster and he will shipwreck the team's entire season. The guy who's cocky is just as bad for the team as the guy who quits. Right, what coaches are looking for all preseason long when they're making their cuts is the guy who's bought in. He's not going to quit. He's invested. He tries. He's playing hard. He's not going to quit. And he's humble. He recognizes that you know, he's on a team. He wants the team to get better. He wants to learn, grow, help make the team better. And Peter, bless his heart, right? Peter is not a quitter, but he's a little cocky. And it's just as bad, right? Proverbs 16, verses 18 to 19. It says, pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit goes before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Sometimes pride and self-assuredness are as dangerous, if not more so, than a propensity to, to quit, right? When you look at your life, when you look at your marriage, when you look at your family, do you have a healthy respect for the damage that can be done by sin and the consequences of sin? Or do you think that would never happen to me? I'm too good, I'm too righteous, I'm too spiritual, the only people that would be vulnerable to that kind of sin are people who are not as good as me. Do you have a healthy respect for your adversary, Satan, and the demonic realm? It should be noted, all of them, right? Every, every member of the demonic realm is much stronger than you. They've been alive for billions, trillions of years, right? They are more powerful than you and they want to shipwreck your faith, destroy your marriage. They'll use any means necessary to try and make that happen, right? So when you consider your life and your soul and your, your marriage, right? Do you think, man, I have a, an adversary that's more powerful than me that wants to do me harm, so I need to be on guard against them. I need to trust the Holy Spirit to protect me from them. Or do you think, not really a big deal, right? I don't have to worry about it. I'm, if, if Satan even exists, I'm sure that I can handle anything that he throws my way. The quitter, the quitter loses by forfeit because he never shows up to play. The cocky guy loses because he thinks he's too good, doesn't bother to prepare, and then is surprised to find out that his opponent is better than him and is embarrassed. So don't quit. Don't punt the faith. Don't walk away from God. Don't walk away from the church. Right? Don't stop 
practicing the spiritual disciplines, loving your family, repenting and believing the gospel. Don't quit and don't be cocky. Don't think so highly of yourself that you think that you're not susceptible to sin, vulnerable to sin. You don't have to worry about sin. You don't have to worry about selfishness, fear of man, temptation, the love of money. Don't think so highly of yourself that you think that you are not susceptible to these things because that's the exact moment when you would fall prey to those things. So don't quit and don't be, don't be prideful. Then in verse 34, Peter says, or Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. We're going we're gonna to see it in a couple of weeks as we read through that account. But this is not an angry mob. I mean, maybe. Maybe it will turn into that. Peter obviously is afraid that it's going to turn into some angry mob that's going to pitchforks and you know, ki- kill him, right? But it, it, in reality, it's a, it's a young girl asking Peter, hey, aren't you, aren't you the one who follows Jesus? And Peter, the strongest, the leader of the disciples, the most confident of all 12 of them, is terrified of a little girl asking him if she is associated with with Jesus. So don't quit. Don't, Don't quit like Judas. But don't be proud like Peter. Those are both, uh, you know, cautionary tales for us. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack and sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. This is a reference back to Luke chapter 10, where Jesus sends out his disciples. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I'm sending you out. Don't worry about a money bag. Don't worry about a knapsack. You're fine without it. Right? Just go find someone who will take you in, crash with them, preach the gospel, call people to repentance. Later in the chapter, they come back. They're like, Jesus, this was amazing. We, you know, stayed, everyone invited us into their homes. We preached the gospel. We did miracles. It was awesome. The spirit was moving in power. Jesus says, you remember that? And they say, of course. How can we forget? It was awesome. Then he says, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So remember when I sent you out before? Absolutely. Everything turned out great, right? Yes. Well, don't do that. Do the exact opposite this time. Which is weird, right? Jesus, if it's not broke, don't fix it, right? Why do we we need to take provisions and supplies this time when we didn't need to last time? And why do we need a sword? Answer verse 37. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, what is written about me has its fulfillment. So he's saying, back in Luke 10, everything was great, right? We were, we were traveling as a part of this huge caravan, tons of people. I was like this rock star, preacher, teacher, healer. Everyone loved Jesus. Everyone, my, my reputation preceded me. Whenever I'd walk to a new place, people would say, oh my goodness, it's Jesus, this is amazing, Right? If you're Jesus, come stay with us. If you're associated with Jesus, come stay with us. Right? And we traveled down from Galilee in northern Israel down to Jerusalem in southern Israel. It's kind of a home game. Right? We, were, we never really left our home country. That's all about to change. Right? In, the, in the days and weeks and months and years that are coming, it's not going to be a home game and we're not going to be these celebrated rock stars that everyone loves and wants us to come. What's about to happen is Judas, one of the twelve, is going to betray me, hand me over. I'm going to be arrested. 
tried, condemned, right? They're going to say, they're going to say to the people, who would you rather have released back out onto the streets? Jesus or Barabbas, a terrorist? Like Osama bin Laden, right? Who would you rather have Jesus or that guy? And they're going to all unanimously say, we want that guy. We think Jesus is worse. He's more of a threat to society. He is uh, worse than that terrorist that has been trying to kill us. So you're about to go, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified, buried, resurrected, ascend, right? I'm, I'm not going to be the rock star preacher healer, miracle worker who goes around like the Beatles and everyone celebrates them. People are going to hate you and want to kill you. And before we've been in Israel, pretty much exclusively, I'm going to send you out to the ends of the earth, Syria, Asia Minor, Italy, Rome, foreign lands. It'll be difficult. It'll be dangerous. Take a change of clothes, right? Take some walk around money. Take take a, a sword in case you need to defend yourself. And they say, hey, look, here are two swords. And he says, it is enough, right? So the, the disciples, you know, are, maybe are a little too, they, they kind of, Jesus is like, everyone just chill out, right? I said, take a sword with you, discreetly keep it on your person in case you're attacked. I didn't say start waving them around and like asking for a fight. I didn't say to, you know, go and try to, convert people through violence or intimidation or go and try to start a war. Just keep a sword on you. Be discreet. You know, be, be careful with it. Long and short of these last few verses is Jesus is saying, before you didn't need to take stuff with you because that was a particular circumstance and that was okay. Now, you do need to take this stuff with you because we're in a different circumstance, and that's okay too, right? The Christian life will invariably take you through different circumstances, different seasons, and those circumstances will call for differing responses. I want you to be wise and discerning and godly and figure out what it means to be a Christian at that moment in this this world. It's not always... I can't just say simply... Always take a money bag, always take a knapsack, always take, right, or never take a money bag, or never, right, the, the, the Christian life is, often it's, it's not that simple. Admittedly, there are some Christians who try to overcomplicate the Christian life. Often, in my experience, because they're embarrassed by what the Bible says, or they're trying their hardest to convince themselves and everyone else that the Bible doesn't say what it says clearly and simply, right? God is sovereign, not you. Humanity is lost in sin. They cannot accomplish their own salvation. Jesus is the only way to be saved. You can't be saved apart from trusting in him. God is calling you to turn from your sin, Sexual sin, all all other, right? God wants you to turn from your sin, right? The Bible says a lot of things that are not popular, and there are a lot of Christians that want to overcomplicate it so that they don't have to believe or do what the Bible actually says. It's offensive. It's, a faint, it's offensive to tell people that Jesus is the only way that they can be saved and that apart from him, they are separated from God and they are deserving of, of hell. Holding to a biblical sexual ethic in the 21st century is not popular. So a lot of people come across these things and they say, well, 
It's, it's complicated, right? Like, you know, the biblical sexual ethic, uh, it's complicated, right? Is Jesus the only way to, to re- be saved? It's complicated. I knew, I knew a guy one time who uh, came to me and said, I just got this girl pregnant. I don't want to be with her. I want to be with this other girl. So I'm going to let the first woman uh, raise my child as a single mom. Or I don't know, maybe she'll meet some other guy and that guy can help her raise my child or maybe she'll get an abortion or something. I don't know. But I want to I go marry this second woman and never tell her that any of that first th- stuff happened. Is that okay? And I said, no. That's not okay. Right? I walked him through dozens of, of passages of Scripture. I said, you have to be a father to this child that you just conceived. You have to stop having sex with women you're not married to. You have to tell this new woman about the situation, even if it means that she might leave you and not want to be with you. And his response was, it's not that, like, it's complicated, man. Like, it's not that simple. I've got a really complex situation on my hands, and I really need to think through all the variables. And again, the more passages that I would show him about the responsibilities of men and husbands and fathers, the more I told him, it's not really that complicated. The Bible understands this to be pretty simple. So sometimes Christians overcomplicate the word of God when it is speaking simply and clearly, and we shouldn't do that. But sometimes Christians oversimplify the word of God and become stiff-necked and stubborn and, and combative when actually it's, you know, how much uh, should you save money for retirement, and if so, how much should you save? Well, Proverbs 6, read Proverbs 6 for homework, right? Proverbs 6 says, if you don't save, you're foolish and you're in sin, okay? Luke 12 says, if you save too much, you're foolish and you're in sin. So, right, how little is too little that we're violating the spirit of Proverbs 6? How much is too much that we're violating the spirit of Luke 12? It's not simple. We have to be wise. We have to think about it. We have to seek counsel, right? If you have a friend or a a family member, fellow church member with an addiction or a besetting sin, do you extend grace to them? If so, how much? For how long? If you extend little to no grace, that borders on self-righteousness and pride, and that's sin. If you extend too much grace for too long, that borders on enabling and encouraging sin. It's not simple. Right? You're, you know... Christian in Nazi Germany, do you flee the country or do you stay and work for reform within? If you're harboring people who are being, you know, rounded up and killed. If someone comes and says, do you have any, are you hiding anyone? Do you, do you lie? Because that's a sin. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Do you hand them over to be slaughtered? That's probably a sin, right? Jesus is saying, right, there, there's not some simple rule. Always take a money bag. Always take, right, never take a money bag. Often the Christian life is, you have to be wise, you have to be discerning, you have to read your Bible, you have to think carefully, you have to seek counsel, you have to surround yourself by wise and godly people that can help you to discern what is good and right and godly for that particular circumstance. Before, it was, don't take a money bag. Now, it is due. Even Peter, right? Uh, Two minutes ago, in this conversation, the right thing for Peter to do would have been to be quiet, right? Like, don't stand up and run your mouth about how great you are and how strong you are. Like, be humble, listen more than you speak, let Jesus speak, and you, that would have been godliness for Peter in that moment. 
later this very night, the godly thing for Peter to do would be to speak up instead of denying and hiding and running away, right? Oh, you're one of Jesus' followers, right? Yes, I am. I follow Jesus. I love Jesus. Even if that means I'm inviting persecution in my life right now, so be it. It's worth it to endure persecution in order to have the reward of knowing Christ and, and receiving the reward from Christ. Peter is awfully chatty and mouthy when he should be quiet and humble. And he's awfully quiet and fearful when he should speak up and be bold. Right? Because different circumstances call for different responses and the task of the Christian is to discern what is the godly response right now and then be faithful to do it. Be wise, think carefully, discern what God's will is, read your Bible, lean on your church family, right? Be humble and not prideful, but be bold and not fearful. Trust in Christ, receive his grace. And then as you do, right, turn, go, and, and love and strengthen and encourage your fellow believers, just like Jesus has called us to. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to you know, consider this, this uh, episode with Peter to learn from it. Help us to be better Christians because of it. Lord, we pray that you would save us and preserve us and protect us from the attacks of the devil. We pray that you would give us grace so that we can strengthen our brothers and sisters and encourage them and disciple them. We pray that you would keep us from the sins of pride and presumption and self-assuredness. Help us to be meek and humble and quick to listen and slow to speak. Lord, help us to see you rightly as our great and glorious Savior, and help us to respond to you appropriately by trusting and obeying. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.